Welcome. I will say this before I pray, and this is a big statement. I really want to encourage you guys. I really want to urge everyone here. If you've heard this type of message, if you've heard this type of content a million times, I promise you it will be different today. And this is a message you don't want to miss. You don't want to not get. Because this is probably the single largest area that the enemy has been able to deceive in. Deceive Christians into literally making the bride of Christ impotent. Inaccessible to the power of God. And the scary part is most people have no idea. Most people have no clue. Let's pray. Father, we worship you. We praise you. We thank you, God. I pray your power in Jesus' name to flow through this message. That it not be my words, but it be only yours. You have laid this on my heart this morning because of the importance of this to your bride. The effectiveness that the enemy uses to really make your bride inactive, incapable. This fights against the very purity of relationship with you. Father, so I ask that you push me out of the way. I freely step out of the way. You don't have to push. I freely, by choice, step out of the way and give you my mouth, give you my will, my, my thoughts. You have my heart, Father. I give you my hands, my feet. I give you everything that I am. I just ask that you use me right here, right now, according to your will. I will hold nothing back that you give me. So, Lord, just do your will. We love you and we thank you and we praise you and we sit expectantly. In Jesus' precious name, amen. I'm going to have you turn somewhere and I think immediately you're going to know what this is about. But as it develops, it might surprise you. I want you to turn to James chapter 3. James chapter 3, the beginning of it, talks about the taming of the tongue. And we've all heard about this. We all understand how words hurt. Words can be damaging to those who we speak them to. That's not at all what I'm talking about today. I'm talking about the words that you speak seemingly in private. 
The words that you speak to a friend when you're just venting. The words you speak to anyone outside of the Lord that are done in the flesh. Let's read, beginning at verse 1. Actually, let's begin at verse 5. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of righteousness. I'm sorry, a world of unrighteousness. By the way, notice the, the picture here that it's giving. When it talks about a tongue of fire, remember how that is even used prophetically, right? Think about even the two witnesses. What happens to those who come against them? What comes out of their mouth? Fire. Fire that literally consumes. Now, you could take that literally, and and there there could definitely be be a portion of that in there, but but I I want to... Again, cement in the power of words. Both good and bad. I mean, think of how powerful Jesus' words were and are here on this earth. Let's let's continue. Let me start back at 6 again. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. (laughs) Okay, James doesn't goof around, does he? I'm going to read that again, and I don't know about you, if you haven't underlined it, if you haven't highlighted it in your Bible, please do. Because this statement is such a powerful statement, especially the end of it. Let me read it again, verse 6. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. By hell itself. He's giving you a little bit of insight there to recognize that there is something at work and at play in your words, in your declarations, that might be further than what you might think. Let's continue on. Verse 7. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. Notice it says human being can tame the tongue. Just like in the examples it gave before, where humans have tamed those beasts, I cannot choose to tame your tongues. (laughs) I mean, wouldn't that be nice sometimes? Especially as you become parents, you learn that that is something you cannot do. Right? You cannot tame someone else's tongue. By the way, you can't tame your own tongue either. You can work in conjunction with Jesus 
you can work in conjunction in in relationship with him to work it. But it's because the tongue has such capability of this fire. Again, verse 8, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Let me continue on, and then I want to go back to that. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not so to be. Or not be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Let's go back to verse 9. With it we bless, again, with our tongue, with our tongue, with our voice, with our words, we bless our Lord and Father. We give praise to Him. We just did worship. We gave praise to Him out of our mouth. It wasn't in our mind. It was vocal. It was out there. By the way, why do you think that the power of our words is when it's vocalized? It's because that's when it goes out into the kingdom. That's when it goes out into the realm that we don't see. The realm where God's angels and demonic spirits and principalities are. And when we speak it, whatever we speak, we speak with authority. Why do we speak with authority? We talked about it last week. Because we're the prize. We're the prize. We are the portion of God's creation that he created to be in his image. To be in relationship with him. So we're the prize. When we speak, everything is taken down. And there is power in our words. It says here, with that same tongue, we bless the Lord. We even perhaps bless others. Maybe we prophesy over others. Maybe we encourage others. Oh, brother, you know, you just are so awesome. God's doing so many good things in your life. It's so awesome what he is choosing to do. And then you go home and you talk to that special someone that has the same affinity to just talk and gossip. And you say, Yeah, you know, I was really trying to encourage him today, but man, has he got some issues. I know I tried to encourage him, but boy, it's just not not even true. Wow. Do you know that's what James is talking about? You just negated and more than negated everything you tried to do, quote unquote, in the Lord. Because you literally just spoke curses over that person. And out of the same mouth, we bless. Out of the same mouth, we curse. Now, understand what that word curse means. And, and, and I know, perhaps online, some of you who follow, especially just pick apart stuff, I'm going to lose you right here. That's okay. Cursing is a very real thing. 
Witchcraft is a very real thing. I didn't used to think so. In fact, I didn't, honestly, in my, I've been, how long have I been saved? 40, 49 years? 48 years? Something like that. In 40 of those years, before the Lord opened my eyes, I'll tell you what I thought witches were. I thought witches were a costume that some stupid people wore on Halloween. That's what I thought a witch was. I mean, I knew some people believed in being witches and whatever, but I never, I never believed that they really had power to do stuff, even though I had actually seen some stuff. But in my mind, I'm thinking, you know, witches are just, they're just really confused people. And, and by the way, for the most part, that's very true. They're very lost, and they're very confused. What I didn't realize was the true power of witchcraft, the true power of curses, the true power of something being spoken by somebody with authority in that against somebody else, and there actually being effect of it. And you know one of the greatest teachers in the world? One of the greatest, and, and, and God uses this constantly, is experience. Right? When you experience something, and it's the truth of it, I'm not talking about something that's a deception. I'm talking about the truth of an experience. You know it's true. I'll give you a great example. When you accept Jesus Christ into your heart as Savior, you are justified of sin. That is the, the justification of sin part of your salvation. Your body doesn't change. Right? You don't all of a sudden get a nice tan. You don't all of a sudden get all these friends. Your whole life does not just in the blink of an eye change. But you know in your heart something has changed. You recognize in your heart that something happened because you feel it, right? You experienced it. But how can you prove that to somebody else? So you can't. In that moment, you can't. Now the Bible says it's proved out by their fruit. You can see someone's fruit and know that they're a child of God. But I'm talking about experientially in the moment. You cannot say to the person leading you, oh, did you feel that? That was, oh, that was awesome. I felt that. Did you feel that? Well, no, that was for you. That was you personally. You experienced that. You know nobody can take that away from you because that was between you and the Lord. Even though, by the way, Satan tries to take it away from you. One of the first things Satan does when somebody accepts Jesus Christ as Savior is start telling them, didn't really happen. No, that's not really true. No, it's, it's just a feeling. Just an experience. Right? But you know that you went through that experience. Can't tell somebody else about that. That's what I mean by experience is power. He teaches us through experience. 
that witchcraft, I have been taught about the power of witchcraft through experience, through being the target, through learning how to war in it and through it. Against it, I mean, not using it, but against it. To war on that battlefield for people and even for myself. I've experienced it. Now, what do they use? What do they use? For those of you who don't know, I'll explain what a witch does. And I'm not talking about, you know, some Wicca person or whatever that wants to worship a tree. That's not what I'm talking about. I mean, that's witchcraft, don't get me wrong, and they are used by real witches. But a real witch is one who knows what they're doing. They serve the God who they think is God, who they think loves them, who has completely deceived them, and that God is Satan. See, a real witch that would come after you They don't pick up a gun and come to your house and shoot you. No, what they do is they, through words, through a curse, through an out loud expression, they conjure demonic spirits to do their bidding. And you might think, well, that doesn't affect me because I don't even believe in that stuff. You'd be sorely mistaken. Even the very deception of that unbelief is a result of this witchcraft. So understand the power of words. That's why you being the prize, your words are important. They're certainly important to your life. When we speak life, when we worship, when we worship out loud, we are proclaiming whose we are. It's kind of like if you, if you could imagine that you wanted the enemy to know whose side you're on, right? That's what worship is. It is worshiping the one who I know is God, who I've chosen for myself. Because nobody can choose it for me. I've chosen for myself to be his. He even gave me that choice. This thing keeps falling, doesn't it? He even gave me that choice so I could choose him freely, right? But it's in those words that come out of my mouth that my real heart is shown. If you meet a Christian or a person who says they're a Christian, but... They don't engage in worship. They don't engage in talk that, that is, is uh, uh, of the Lord. They, they just gossip. They do this. They do that. Then you have to understand the power of their own tongue over their own life. Because both blessings and curses come out of the same tongue. And I want to go to another reference here real quickly, then we'll move past it. But this lays it out very succinctly. And that is Proverbs 18. I want you to write these down. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21. Proverbs 18, 21 says this. Death and life 
are in the power of the tongue. And those who love it will eat of its fruits. Let me repeat that. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Now you can read that on the surface and just think, well, yeah, you're kind of speaking death or you're speaking life. Let me ask you something. What did Peter speak when, when he told Ananias that they were coming to bury his body? Right? He spoke death. He spoke truth. There was power in the tongue. There was power in his tongue because of his walk with the Lord. There was power in that moment because of the holiness and the sanctity of what the Holy Spirit was doing in the moment. But it was spoken out. See, if it wasn't by the power of the tongue, the way the Lord sets it up, this thing's falling again. The way the way the Lord sets it up, then why did he even need to speak to Sapphira? He didn't even have to speak with her. She could have just dropped dead wherever she was because of taking the money and hiding it and lying to the Holy Spirit. But he spoke it out. He spoke it out, and that followed what Ananias had to speak out. Right? Why didn't Ananias just die and Sapphira die when they did it? The act was already done. It was already done in their heart. But the moment of judgment came when they spoke it. When they spoke it out. That was the moment that authority was given in their case to speak death. So death and life are in the power of the tongue. Now I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 12. And we're going to go a few places this morning. Matthew chapter 12. We're going to start at verse 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good. Or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. And this is Jesus speaking, by the way. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Now there is a lot here. There are a lot of layers here. Because, and I go back to what I believed for 40 years, what I taught for so many years. Well, yeah, but this is about your confession of Christ. That's why it says... With the tongue, confession is made, right? Whenever I lead somebody to the Lord, I encourage them to pray out loud. 
Because it says, by the tongue, confession is made. Why? Because God can only hear your tongue? No, it's because Satan can only hear your tongue. The enemy can only hear your tongue. God knows your heart. But your confession and your acceptance of salvation is also a part of telling Satan that you are no longer his because you're one of the others. Right? We're born into sinful flesh. We are not our own. We're one or the other. We're going one place or another place. There isn't some middle place that we get to choose that is just the, this is the human place. No, it doesn't work. It doesn't work that way. That's not how it's set up. We were created with choice. And we have choice to do that. But the fact of the matter is, that every word that we speak, we're held accountable to. That's what it says here. Let me read this again. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word that they speak. Every single careless word. Okay, so what I used to believe was, okay, I've accepted Jesus Christ as Savior. I've said that out loud. I am saved. I am bought with a price. I am cleansed. I am. I have this Jesus filter just draped over me now. So, I'm done. Satan can't touch me. I'm going to heaven. He can't take that away from me. And, and so, so, by my words, right, I will be judged. And when I go to the judgment seat of Christ, the behemoth seat of Christ, which is where Christians go those who know him as Savior. The other one you don't want to be at, which is the great white throne judgment. Those are for those who do not know the Lord. But at the Bema Seat of Christ, he's going to look at me and, okay, you know, yes, you've accepted Jesus, so all, all your sins are forgiven, which is absolutely true. And all those careless words, they're just covered under the blood of Christ. And then it just kind of gets hazy for me, or used to. Because we, th- we, we really don't know, you know, and this, this was my reasoning then, we really don't know exactly what heaven's like. We don't know what the afterlife is like. We have some clue in the thousand-year reign, but really beyond that, we, we don't know a whole lot about that. So, so I just know that, that I'm saved. Jesus will never take that back. I can't give it back. And... And Satan certainly can't come and take it, so I'm I'm just not going to worry about it. I'm just not going to worry about it. And then what I do is I spend my life in my own strength trying to do good. I'm literally explaining to you my life, my saved life for 40 years. And then God began to open my eyes to what relationship was. He began to open my eyes to, to what our lives, and what salvation really means. Right? We've talked about this a thousand times. Relationship with Jesus Christ, which is what the Bible talks about as sanctification, is different than justification of sin. They're both called salvation in the Word of God. In fact, there's a third part in there too called glorification which we kind of don't worry about. We, we push that off because uh, you know, that's when you get to heaven, you get a glorified body, which maybe someday the Lord will let me, let me preach on because I think there's some differences there too. But there's vast difference between the first one and the second one. 
The first one, which we, we talk about, is your golden ticket to heaven. That is, that is your entry fee. You have an entry card to heaven. That is your justification of sin. That is the filter that God places over you, this Jesus filter in which God looks at you through. I'd imagine it that way. The judgment that comes at, at, at the end times is literally separating those who know Christ and those who do not know Christ. The Father is the judge of that. I mean, it's, it's pretty wild. Look, look in, your, in your prophecy. The Father is the judge of that. But he placed his Son in judgment of everything else. So see, when the Father looks at you and you've accepted Jesus Christ as Savior, He doesn't see sin. He sees you through a filter of Jesus Christ. And you're perfect. You're perfect to Him. Right? He doesn't see sin. Now, does that mean, well, okay, God doesn't know that I sin. Because I, I certainly can choose to sin. Does God not know that? No. When you sin... He sees that you're already forgiven. You're forgiven of past. You're forgiven of present. You're forgiven of future sin. And praise God for that. Absolutely. Praise God for that. But please, church, do not stay there. Do not under, don't think that that's it. I'm covered in the blood of Jesus. So now, you know, I just got to make it through the next 70 years or whatever. So, so I'm going to live my life as best I can. I'll do the best I can. But really, it's just about putting in my time. Putting in my time while I'm here to try and live a good life. You know, not sin as much as I can. You know, as much as I can control and blah, 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 and whatever. Because, see, I've already got my ticket. I'm going to heaven. I'm going to be in heaven. Let me tell you something. God opened my eyes in the hugest way in this, in this account. That there is a difference between Christians, those who know Jesus Christ as Savior, those who are justified of their sin. Those, there is a difference for those in heaven and in the afterlife. If there wasn't, he would not have preached so much about rewards. Because those rewards are not just for here. <laughs> If they were, then Paul's got a real serious lawsuit on his hands. Because, see, he didn't get any of that when he was here. He didn't get what was promised to him if those rewards were carnal rewards. Were rewards just here in this life. They're not. They are positional in heaven. If you think that every Christian... Everyone who knows Jesus Christ as Savior, if you think that their experiences will be the same in eternity, you're very confused. You're very confused. And you're under one of the most amazing deceptions from the enemy to think that's the case. Because, see, it's not all equal. It's not all equal at all. And yet, it's also not because of our talent. Well, you know, God made me a, a great blah, blah, blah. So, you know, I'm going to do that for the kingdom. Yeah, well, guess what? If you don't do that here for God, 
You won't be doing it in the kingdom for God. Because what he works with you by faith, 1 Corinthians 13, when it's face to face, there is no longer that opportunity for faith. The faith is the opportunity right now. Right now, as you build relationship with him, you build relationship with faith. Because you can't see him. But the beauty of God and the beauty of relationship with him is he proves himself out through experiential times with you. I know, and, and I, I know we got, get a lot, of, a lot of flack and different things about different things that, that we say and what we believe and everything else, here, especially hearing God's voice. Here's the problem with that. If you do not believe that God speaks, first of all, you don't understand the Word of God at all. Not even a little bit. Maybe some verses intellectually, and that's it. But here's the problem. To try to tell somebody who hears God's voice that they do not hear God's voice, and yet they experience the very fruits that the Bible teaches, they're experiencing. Experience with him tells them differently. Who am I going to believe? Somebody who wants to speak lies to me, literal word curses, like what we just talked about? Or am I going to believe my father? Am I going to believe my father who through this relationship produces fruit in my life? Not my own fruit. Not fruit that I can take credit for. But fruit he takes credit for because of our relationship. That's the proof. I, I can't tell you how many times I have gone back and, you know, before, let's say, let's say, and there are many long-standing promises and prophecies, right? And Lord, it's just been so long. Your idea of soon, man, alive. You know, we need to teach you the human idea of soon. <laughs> Right? I mean, when you're telling Peter soon, 2,000 years ago, God, you do realize that we only live for, you know, whatever, 100 years, maybe. Right? So, so soon is, is, in many minds, not soon enough. So when those things, and when the enemy comes to me and says, you know, it's not true. You know, God's really not going to do that. that. By the way, that wasn't even him. <laughs> that was an angel of light. It wasn't even him. Do you know how I get through that? Because believe me, I do take everything to heart. When somebody wants to speak to me and say that, especially another Christian, say, well, you know, I think this or I see this. If I don't evaluate that, then I can allow sin into my own life. doesn't mean I give it credit. You understand what I'm saying? But I absolutely have to evaluate, is what they're saying true? And for me, I can only explain how I do it. For me, I take it always back to the basics. Okay, Lord, if I really am listening to a lying spirit, if I really am, if ignition is really listening to a lying spirit, then there should be fruit of that lying spirit. Okay. Okay, let's look at the fruit. Let's evaluate the fruit. 
And you can do that surfacy. I'll do it surfacy all day. I mean, that's how I grew up. That's how the Baptists do it. I can say that because that's where I came from. They thrive on the surfacy. So let's talk surfacing. In the last three years, we've had over 10,000 people come to know the Lord as Savior. How's that? How's that for a surfacy piece of fruit? Wow, Satan kind of messed up on that one, didn't he? But you know what? That, to me, is the least of the fruit. You know what the fruit is? The fruit is here when I look around in all your faces and people that I have seen changed. I mean, I could go through people here that have been here for the last five, six years that have gone through monumental change in their life. Monumental change of being afraid of who God is, afraid of what He is and what He does, and even more afraid of the enemy to now knowing who they are in Christ, knowing their authority in Christ, knowing how to fight in Christ for even themselves, but beyond that, knowing how to fight for others. I have seen people go from being pummeled and beat up to being absolute warriors. So I'm sorry. If we're listening to a wrong spirit... He is doing a really bad job. (laughs) Satan should get rid of him. Because he's helping Jesus Christ. Because that's all we ever talk about. I mean, if I know online you may not know this. Here in these circles, with this church, which we got stuff going on every single day. I mean, is that insane? We're a house church that does more than most churches that have these big buildings. You know, I have an idea, Lord. Try giving us one of those and see how that goes. I'm not testing the Lord. I'm just telling him we'll steward it. Because we love the Lord. There's nothing that can break that love. So, so here, here's the thing. Look at our speech. Look at who we claim that we love. Look at who we talk about. Look at who envelops every piece of our conversation. And then tell me who we serve. Tell me what voice we're hearing. No, I'd flip it. And I'd say... If your fruit is only superficial, which some that come against us, I know their lives. I know their fruit. And I know the superficialness of it. So take a hard look. Take a hard look at who may be listening to the lying spirit. Because words bring death as well as life. That's why Satan's engaged in this battle. That's why he's engaged in these, in these words. 
And again, going back to Matthew 12, every careless word, every careless word we're going to be judged for. He's not talking here about saved versus unsaved. He's talking to Christians here. If you don't believe me, you know what? Let's, let's go to, uh, there, there are two parables that, that Jesus talks about. One is the parable of the ten minas, and then that's in Luke 19. And you could go to Luke 19. And then the other is the parable of the talents, which is in Matthew 25 which is when Jesus is preaching. The interesting thing is, man, they sound a lot alike. You know, like maybe maybe Luke and Matthew should have gotten together and realized, you know, use one currency here, use one name, you know what? No, I, I'll tell you what I believe Jesus did. Think about it. Jesus preached just about every day and healed and spoke and talked and poured out relationship for over three years. And after three years, that's, that's what, over a thousand days, right? And I don't think he had a thousand different sermons. In fact, he pretty much kept it simple. He kept it to the gospel. There were times that he shared prophetically, and, and that's actually where these come from. But I assume that these are, are, takes from different dimes that he was saying the same thing. These do say the same thing, except there's some very interesting differences. And, and before I go there, I do want you to understand something that I had said before about, about uh, losing your salvation. I want you to write this down. If Satan or anybody else ever tells you you can lose your salvation, take them to Ephesians 1 verse 13 and 14, and tell him to explain that to you. If you think you can learn, lose, if, even with Satan, Satan, if you think I can lose my salvation, you explain Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. He can't. And by the way, he can't tell you it's not the word of God either, because he knows it is. You are sealed. You are sealed by the power of the Holy Spirit when you accept Jesus Christ as Savior. You are sealed. However, it is your spirit that is sealed. Your carnal body and your will, your soul, is what the Bible calls your will, your mind, still has choice. That's because when you were saved, God wasn't through with you yet. If, if he was, why do we have to stick around after we accept him? Man, the moment we accept him, boom, just take us home. I mean, because what's the point of staying here? Except for the fact that there's the next part, which is relationship. So please, please differentiate the two. Because when I get into explaining this one here, you will understand that you can lose rewards. You can lose status. You can lose placement. Not going to heaven, but placement in heaven. Placement in the afterlife. Luke chapter 19. We'll start at verse 11. As they heard these things, and this Jesus just giving a parable. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable. Because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. 
which is awesome. I, I'm so glad that Jesus put this in here. He said, therefore, a nobleman, and this is the parable, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas, which is, which is a, a, an amount of currency. And he said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens, his own citizens, hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he ret- and, and by the way, you could get in and dig so many layers out of just that right there. I encourage you to do that. We're not going to do that this morning. Please do that. There is so much right there. Verse 15, when he returned, having received, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants who he'd given, given the money to, to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. In other words, he wanted to see how they stewarded what he gave them. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said, well done, good servant. That's where we get the phrase, well done, good and faithful servant. I just want to hear that, right? I just want to hear that. Do you know that's not because of your salvation? That's what I used to think. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have accepted me. Come on in. Doesn't even make sense. Steward of what? Steward of, of realizing he's the son of God and died for me on the cross? And I received him as savior? I mean, that's awesome. But that's not much to steward. Because, see, I wasn't given anything. And he talks about in the parable of giving something. Do you know when you were, when you accepted Jesus Christ as Savior, you were given something? You were given an opportunity. Bible talks about it complete, probably more about this than anything else. And it's about sanctification. It's about our relationship with Him. He's given you an opportunity to build relationship with Him. To build closeness with Him. To walk in purity with Him. He's given that opportunity. He's expected us to steward it. What do we do with it? Do we manage it by control? Or do we literally give it to Him And let him control us. He said, well well done, good and faithful servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. Interesting how it went from investment to authority over ownership. That's pretty huge when you think about it. Verse 18, and the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. And what that means there is you are a man of expectation. You had great expectation to produce where there is no production. That's literally what what the Greek means there. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. Then he said to him, 
I will condemn you with your own words. You wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to him, to the one who has ten. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. Verse 26, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, and he switches gears, goes back to what I said to to push into up top. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. I want you to recognize here when he ta- when he they they come to him and they literally say, but why why are we giving this one that this guy didn't steward right? Why are we giving this one to the one who did ten? Because because fairness fairness and equity and equality and all these good righteous things right now would mean that everybody should have the same. So shouldn't we maybe take half or or take 80% of what the guy with 10 had, and we'll split it amongst these other people. So everybody kind of gets the same. Jesus could not have been more clear here. That's not how the kingdom of heaven works. That's not how his kingdom works. He expects you to steward what he gives you. He expects you to work with him and through him so he can do his work in you. If you don't let him do that, that is a poor steward of what he gives you. Doesn't mean that you're not a servant. Never in one place there did he say, you are no longer my servant. In fact, let's just go over to the Matthew, Matthew 25. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But all, because it's kind of the same setup, same, same, uh, uh, rough structure. But I want to just go to the end where, where he talks to this, this servant that did not do what he was supposed to. Uh, let me see. Um, we'll just start at verse 24. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you do not sow and gathering where you scatter no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. Here, here, I give back what you gave me in the first place. Verse 26. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. Right? He didn't say you are no longer my servant. He said you have not done what I have asked. You are wicked and slothful. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scatter no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten. For everyone who has, more will be given. And he who has an abundance, and and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant, and I want you to get this, this is important. And cast... The worthless servant into the outer darkness, into that place where there will be gnashing, weeping and gnashing of teeth. This right here is where the bride has become confused 
Because they say, well, no, he's cast into hell. So some say, oh, see, right there you can lose your salvation. Because, see, the, the servant, he was a servant. I'll, I'll agree with you on that. He was a servant. And he was cast into hell because he didn't steward properly. And they would be wrong. Because they don't even understand what the words mean there. Or what God has planned for his servants. I know because that's where I used to be. Not, not in terms of losing salvation. What I thought here was, oh, see, clearly that servant wasn't really a servant. He was somebody who said he loved Jesus, but, but he didn't really accept him as Savior because he ended up in hell. No, he didn't. That's not what this is saying. He didn't end up in hell. In fact, I want you, you can look this up later and dig into it, but look up the Greek word there, darkness. In fact, I'll, I'll, I'll pull it up for you. The Greek word for darkness, to be cast into the outer darkness, is literally the Greek word for shadiness, for less light. Not no light. Big difference. In terms of what we're talking about, enormous difference. Literally what it is talking about in that Greek phrase is proximity to the light. Okay, now I'm going to throw something out here that might shed a little light on it for you. Jesus Christ is a man right now and for eternity. When he became a man, he paid the price as a man to stay a man. He is a hundred percent man and a hundred percent God. He didn't give up his Godhead. He is God. But he is a man. And I'm going to say something again that I think this is where we lost Tons of people, whatever, before. Jesus Christ is not omnipresent. He gave that up when he became a man. You saw it when he raised from the dead. He no longer was omnipresent. He was where the disciples, when, when they saw him, he was physically present. Right? He was given his glorified body. But that did not stop him from being fully God. Understand the choice he made. The more you understand this, the more you're going to understand the sacrifice that he made for you and for me. Because he gave up things eternally, eternally to save you and to save me. One of them was this. Now, if you understand that, then that last phrase that we read starts to make a lot more sense. Because, see, we're not just a bunch of spirits floating around and kind of interweaving and, you know, we're all kind of meshed. And God's right in the middle. I I don't know if that's what I used to think. I mean, I didn't honestly didn't think about it. I just thought, you know, there's enough to think about here on this earth. And 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 I'm not going to think about it because I don't really know. Didn't want to take the time to really study. Oh, man, what a mistake. No, he wants us to know the fruits of his kingdom. He wants us to know. See, there is a proximity to Jesus 
Not just in the thousand year reign. Although that one's obvious because he takes the throne of David in Jerusalem. But even in heaven. Do you know what happens after that, by the way? Do you, know, do you realize that technically, let's say you were to never die. And you were to stay here until the end of the human end and eternity beginning. Do you know you would never leave this earth? Do you know the end is not about the earth coming to God and becoming part of the kingdom of heaven? It's what Jesus started 2,000 years ago. It's about bringing heaven to earth. If you don't believe me, go study. Go study the end of Revelation. It says at the end, it says, Now it is time for God to dwell with man. Not for man to dwell with God. For God to dwell with man. And then you see... The new Jerusalem, which, by the way, is heaven. The new Jerusalem descend. And it descends to earth. It literally becomes a mountain on the earth. Right? So, in that time, in the thousand year reign, and in the time after, there still is the Holy Spirit, which is in every single one of us who accept Jesus Christ as Savior. There is still God the Father that is everywhere and permeates everything. But then there is Jesus, our king. There is Jesus who sits on a throne. A man who sits on a throne who saved his people. There will be a physical place for him. Not just in the thousand year reign. So do you understand the reward? Do you understand what is given is, and and it, it verifies this at the end of what we just read in Matthew 25. It is the closeness, if you will, of Jesus. Is Jesus a prize? I think if I were to go around here and ask everybody in here, I would think that you would say yes. I mean, I mean to be close to Jesus, if, if you knew Jesus was upstairs right now, how, how many would do everything they could to get upstairs to be with him? Heck yeah. I, I wouldn't hit the stairs. You guys would all take that. I'd try and jump right up there as much as I could. Use this table or something. I'd do everything I could to get to him. See, he's given you that opportunity right now. You have that in this life. This life when you do it by faith. And let me tell you, and I'm going to close with this. There's one thing that tears it down. There's one thing that Satan uses to destroy your relationship with Christ as well as others. That's your words. That's your words. When you talk about other people, oh, they don't know. They don't hear me. I'm, you know, it's just me and my friend talking. We're... Nobody else can hear. We're just talking. We're, you know, we're just venting. No, there is somebody who hears. First of all, Jesus hears. But you know what? So does the enemy. And Revelation 12 says that he comes day and night before the Lord with a legal right to go after you and go after the things that you say. When you curse yourself, 
you've got to know Satan uses that. Oh, man, I'm just, I'm just so this. Or, or ah, I can't believe I, I just can never do this right. I know that sounds pretty simple. But think about it in the intricacy of what Satan wants to do in your life in terms of destruction. He then takes that phrase, takes those words, got it written down on paper because it's your own declaration, and he goes before the court of the Lord and he said, I'm I'm not pushing this myself. Here's my evidence. They said it directly themselves. Do you know what that gives? That gives him right and authority to go after you in those words. And it's not your thoughts. It's different than your thoughts. Satan can't read your thoughts. It's what comes out of your mouth. That's why James talks about it being a curse. That's why Proverbs said that there is life and death in words. Certainly over your own life, but guess what? Over others as well. Especially, get this church, especially over people you have authority over. If you have authority over somebody, either positionally because of work or, or whatever, or church even, or because you're a parent or, or something like that, you have authority over a person, your words over them speak life and speak death. Now, by the way, not more in authority than their own words. Right? Nobody has the level of authority over my life in, in this world than I do. I can make the choice. But if I choose in my words to give it to the enemy, then I'm literally giving it to anybody he wants to use. However, when a person of authority is speaking words over somebody else that are those careless words, the enemy takes that and he uses it as evidence. Well, you know what? These people are a gossip, and I've got, I've got 20 people here. Or the, these people are, are whatever, whatever they're doing. Satan goes and says, I've got 20 people here saying, you know, that they are this. And I've even got, I mean, even their mother, even their mother is saying this. And, and, and here, here's, a, here's, a, here's a brother, a cousin, or, or, or a boss over here saying this. He takes every piece of evidence that he gets to take you to court, to gain access and right to you. That's why our words are important. Our words in private are important. What we say can speak life or can speak death. It's important. And it's, it's not about the fact that you can't talk about truth. Because there are times that you have to have difficult discussions, even about people. But there is a fine line between a discussion that is intended to bring help to that person or a discussion that is intended to make you feel better. Because there's destruction even in the lips of so many Christians that don't realize the power 
of their words over themselves or over others. Alexis, come on up. It's so amazing how the Holy Spirit works because I, we, he had no idea. And I certainly had no idea he was going to talk about the tongue. And yet I just had announced to the ladies we're going to be getting into that really deep next Sunday. Um, we're going to close in prayer. And um, I cannot tell you enough. Uh, first of all, I hope, I hope you're not confused the, with God being 100% God, with Jesus being 100% God, obviously, because he is one, one with the Trinity, his spirit is omnipresent. Um, so it's different than what, what Greg talked about. Don't get that confused. In that sense, he is. But in his the fact that he's a man, he is not. The other thing that really struck me, um, and I, I just, you know how we pray and pray and pray for Carson. And there's, when you speak, like Greg was saying, when you speak, uh, like for instance, if you speak divorce, you invite the strategy of divorce into your marriage. If you speak um, loneliness and that you, if you continue to declare that you have no friends. I had a lady who I had befriended and was spending time with her and she would always tell me, well, you know, I have absolutely no friends. And without the discerning in the spirit, she could have driven me away. I knew it was not, it was the enemy speaking, but you know, you kind of go, when you're befriending somebody and then they keep declaring that, you're like, what am I, a chop lever? You know, but I knew it was the enemy coming over her but what happens is satan uses that and it does it drives people away whatever you speak you bring about and i've noticed in carson the lord has been doing so much in his life even though the enemy just comes so hard after him you will never hear him speak that he is ill you just won't hear it that does not mean he is in denial he is very aware but he will only speak faith and god's plan over him Whenever you hear him speak of himself or pray over someone else's illness, he always declares, by your stripes, Jesus, we are healed. He always declares healing. So declare, when you hear the voice of the Lord, declare over your life what it will be. What you think about, you speak about. What you speak about, you bring about. So really, really, take captive your thoughts. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5. Take your captive, take, take captive your thoughts. And, um, and I, I just want to say this quickly before we pray. Um, I was driving down the road one time, and I mean, I was hit with such warfare in my mind. It was incredible. I mean, it was like, basically the words were, kill yourself. You know, just, just, will anybody actually notice or care? I literally had those thoughts in my head. And I remember thinking how quickly it could all end just by turning the steering wheel. Just like, that's just it. And, and it was a random kind of thing that came against me. The thoughts, the enemy cannot read, but he shoots in demonically. And he's hoping to get something to come out of your mouth in, in communication. Or even, you know, in writing, but it's some kind of communication to come out of your mouth. But especially out of your mouth in particular. And in that moment, I thought, okay... It wasn't even conscious. It was really just the Holy Spirit because I was just kept thinking, this is crazy. And I, I just thought, the Holy Spirit brought Psalm 23 to my mind. And I was just like, the Lord is my shepherd. I started shouting it in the car. And I mean, those demon thoughts just were so, I always say, sliced by the sword of the Spirit because they were just so shot away from my mind that there was no ability anymore to convince 
my bodily actions in decision to change on behalf of what he was trying to introduce to me. Because I stopped it at the speech. The Holy Spirit did really through me. And so when we declare over ourselves, don't let yourself be mute. Speak over yourself. It's not just, okay, well, I'm not going to agree with that. Or, okay, fine, I'll watch my mouth. I'll just not say anything. No, say the opposite of what the enemy wants you to say. Say, God, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice in it no matter how bad the news is, no matter what. Speak over it. That's why we worship. That's why we pray. That's why we declare. So the, it starts at the thoughts. And the enemy is just so hopeful that your thoughts will turn into your declarations. Because as soon as you declare, everything Greg just said, the enemy uses against you. But, but use your speech as a weapon against your thoughts. Don't be silent. Brooke has mentioned that in, in a worship. Don't let the enemy steal your voice. And it doesn't mean you don't acknowledge. It doesn't mean you don't cry out to God. But if you continue to speak over anything, over your relationship problems, your finances, oh my word, I just have never have any money. Speak God's plan for you. God, in spite of my, in spite of what my checkbook doesn't have, you own a cattle on a thousand hills. Aren't you my source? Despite how my body seems to be breaking down, God, you equip. You equip. So just tell me what to do because you won't tell me what to do that you won't equip me for. That's the kind of, of everything Greg preached on today is directly related to the subduing the earth, taking authority. Beginning to be in agreement with God's plan to fulfill this remnant takeover um, of the bride rising up for the return of Jesus. It's so awesome. So praise God for that great word today. And don't forget those scriptures. Father, thank you, God. Thank you, God, for the power and authority we carry in you, God. When we cast down these imaginations, these proud arguments that come against the knowledge of you, God. We tear down every stronghold to the authority and obedience of Jesus Christ because of what he paid for. Thank you, God, for that. Thank you, God, that that you give us the power. We have no capacity to watch our mouths without you, God. But God, fill our mouths with praise. Fill our mouths with your truth and let us use it to slice the sword of the Spirit, to slice the demons that come against us in these thoughts that are looking for agreements out of our mouths. God, I just, I just praise you for this way. You always make a way to escape the temptation. The temptation even to talk and speak death or negativity over ourselves. God, and it's so much bigger than positive thinking and, and, and speaking, God. It is you. It is your plan. God, I thank you that we see the examples of David in, in the Psalms, that he did cry out, Lord, why is this happening to me? Why, did, why are my enemies coming against me? He could bring everything to you in prayer. But in exchange for what you would give him, there was always a but God, but my God can overcome or whatever it was that he was crying out to you. Thank you, God, that you give us rest in exchange for our burdens when we bring them to you, God. So I just praise you today, God. I praise you for this word. Let it rest heavy on us to bring change and transformation in our lives. We love you, God. As we said, saying earlier, God, my heart is yours. My heart is yours, God. Let us continue to declare that. Let there be, and I bind, even over the listeners of this message, I bind the spirit of mute coming against our words to declare who you are and who we are in you, Lord Jesus. 
in the name of Jesus. I come against any strategies to keep our tongues tied when it comes to speaking truth over ourselves about who you are and who we are in you. In the name of Jesus, God, I pray this. Give us strength. And we thank you, God, for this great nation on today being the 4th of July. We praise you, God, for, for what you have given us, Lord. And we, we are in agreement with this detox plan of all that you're exposing, God, because you will turn it back into um, the, right, the right place, God, as, as your people rise up. The enemy's territory will be taken, Father, in the name of Jesus, and we thank you for it. Thank you, God, for today. Let us celebrate the gift you've given us and to continue to walk in you and in your power to come against the enemy plan to destroy everything around us, God, because you are mighty and holy. In Jesus' name, amen.